Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today, we have Gabriel Weinberg from DuckDuckGo. Uh, DuckDuckGo is a search engine, and I'm going to let Gabriel talk a little bit about that and also his book as well. So, Gabriel, how are you today? Great. Hi, everyone. Good. Thanks. To ha- good to have you on the show. Um, you know, why don't you start off a little bit with uh, you know, a little bit about your background, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So, um, I've been doing startups uh, right out of college since 2000. Um, I had a few unsuccessful attempts and then had a somewhat successful attempt in the mid-2000s and uh, sold that and then started DuckDuckGo, a search engine like you mentioned, um, about seven years ago. And so I've been, been through many stages of growth with it. And I also started angel investing in 2009 and uh, so seeing a lot of uh, stages of growth you know, over those investments. And so that both, both those experiences really led me to, you know, to write this book that you mentioned around how to get traction. Okay. Got it. So yeah, why don't we start off with DuckDuckGo first? So I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times. So what makes DuckDuckGo different from Google? Sure. So originally, um, I was focusing on things that were frustrating me about Google. This was back in 2007. And in particular, that was spam. I've seen a lot of spam, so we more aggressively removed spam. And then I found myself going to sites with uh, good instant answers like Yelp and Wikipedia and thought if you had those answers above the links, you could just have a much better search experience. Um, and that led me to a thesis of let's focus on things that the big companies won't do because of their business model. Um, and so we still do kind of an open approach to instant answers and aggressively remove spam. And then in addition to that, we have adopted uh, no tracking policy, so we don't track our users at all. Um, we call it real privacy, um, which is completely different than Google. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and then the fourth thing is just design. So you know, there's different designs out there. People prefer different web browsers, and we think our design has just a lot less clutter. It's just you know nicer to search with. Got it. Okay, so. No tracking at all means you don't know how many users, active users you guys, you guys have today, huh? You're absolutely right. We have no idea. We, our core metric we track is number of explicit searches um, by humans, as best we can tell. So we kind of get rid of all the bot traffic and things like that. Got it. So I guess it, off the top of your head, I mean, what are the number of explicit searches in 2014 versus the same time period in 2013? Anything you can share like that? Oh, yeah. So actually, our traffic is completely public. Um, at DuckDuckGo.com slash traffic. And we're in general a very transparent company. It's just we don't have a lot of <laughs> tracking by definition. Uh-huh. Um, but we did about we did over a billion searches last year. And we'll probably um, do significantly more than that this year because we're also getting included in uh, Safari, the next versions of nice. iOS 8 and OS X, which are coming out soon. Um, and, and so to compare that from when we started, we got through many orders of magnitude of growth. I mean, um, when we first started, literally, you know, even after launch, we were getting at most 10,000 searches a month. And now we do about, you know, 170 million. And so that's just like many orders of magnitude. We're still small. I mean, in the search engine market, you know, we're probably half a percent or something like that. But we're growing, obviously. But you can go through so many stages of growth in the search engine market, which which made this uh, whole traction concept so interesting to me. Because we had to kind of reset how we think about growth every time we get to the next level. Okay, got it. So interesting. So 
you know, you don't track, I guess you don't track a lot of user data, I guess. So how do you, you know, and this is a question off the top of my head. How do how does someone go about if you don't have this this data to kind of kind of you know find out what people are doing and then like you know what to do about it? I mean, what do you you know how do you get over that that uh, I guess I'll call it a handicap. Uh, you know, how do you get over that handicap? You could call it a handicap. I mean, I do think that there is um, too much data in the world to some degree, and like it it can be distracting. And so finding core metrics to focus on that you can actually move is is useful so you're not distracted. Mm-hmm. So that level of focus actually does help for us. Um, but answer your question a little more directly, and, and one of the things you know we note in the book as a starting point is you know you need a goal, you need a traction goal of some kind, mm-hmm. and it needs to be meaningful for your company. And so for us at the moment, it's getting to one percent of the search market, okay. which is about um, three hundred million searches a month. Okay, so a little less than double where we are now. Got it. And um, then to work backwards from that, you know, we only want to con- concentrate on things, and this would be true for anyone, that is really going to move the needle to that number. And so, you know, off the bat, given our volume, unfortunately for us, most things are just ruled out. You know, like even a, a big, um, you know, press right up in the New York Times for us, like the ideal for a new startup which would have worked great for us two years ago, mm-hmm. would not move the needle for our numbers now. Mm-hmm. And so we need to focus on kind of channels that would move that. And then if we do focus on that and we do get something that works, like for instance, recently we have been focused on um, mainstream TV mm-hmm. as, a, as a growth channel. Um, we can literally see it. I mean, it, you know, because we have so much, even though we don't track a lot, we have so much data, statistically significant, very common patterns per week, um, any deviation is very clear, mm-hmm. and given nothing, other campaigns are going on that are that are huge. You can easily tell kind of what the impact was. Okay, got it. Cool. So you know something that's really interesting to me. I mean, on this show, we always I always ask, you know, how did you get your first you know hundred customers? And, and I think in this case, you know, the question might be, how did you get your first ten thousand uh, you know searches in a month? And the reason I ask, the reason I say this is interesting because. You know, typically when you talk about marketing channels, you're thinking about, okay, there's SEO and then you have SEM and it's all built into the search engine, but then you have a search engine. So it's like, how do you grow that? Yeah, it's a good question. And and to put another point about all these different stages, like it's generally the case that, you know, when you unlock a marketing channel and you grow, it eventually saturates like any channel. Mm-hmm. And then what generally worked for you in the past, you know, you have to kind of reset and find something new to unlock the next stage of growth. It ends up being like a step function. That's exactly what happened to us, DuckDuckGo. And we've literally been through like five of these step functions. And each one of those ended up being a different uh, traction channel to unlock. So at the very first you know, thing um, was SEO actually. Okay. <laughs> Using SEO on Google to get users to DuckDuckGo. And um, that, that kind of unlocks another tip I, I can come back to. But um, so that, that ended up being like the first 10,000, which is taking quickly through the others. Then we moved to social display ads a lot on Reddit. I was mm-hmm. one of the first Reddit advertisers that kind of unlocked another stage. Then we moved to content marketing. Mm-hmm. We put out microsites, and, and I personally did a lot of blogging. That kind of got us to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, that included some hacker newsy type stuff in those communities where the blog posts were being submitted mm-hmm. and more, a little more Reddit. Then we did print advertising. Um, then we did. Uh, 
this TV advertising I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then the last stage, which is right now, is we're currently focused on business development, like this Apple deal that I um, mentioned earlier. Okay. And so each one of those like moved the needle for that stage of business, but wouldn't have worked for the previous stage. Got that's it. what makes it so interesting. Okay, so there's different levers at each stage. Okay, got it. Cool. So let's um let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about traction. So you know what is traction exactly? So I define it as sustainable customer growth, um, and it really impacts everything about your business. That's like my starting point with traction. It makes I call it traction trumps everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes raising money easier. It makes selling your business easier. Basically, if you don't have traction, your company's going to die. Um, and my main thesis or my main learning from all of this has been that people do not focus on traction early enough. The most common story I see and see angel investing is you follow good you know, product development methodology, lead startup, or whatever you want. Um, come out with your product. Some people like it, but you don't have that hockey stick growth in the first few months can't raise money, and then die. And what's saddest about that is it was a good product. Like, mm-hmm. you actually made a good product the customers wanted, but you couldn't get enough traction. And so the main takeaway we have is, you know, you got to start earlier. You got to do it in parallel with product development, and you need a structured approach to finding traction, just like you have a structured approach to doing your product. Got it. Okay. And, you know, can you kind of elaborate on this, on this structured approach a little bit and perhaps give an example? Yeah, so there are multiple ways to do this. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of good frameworks. So we came up with our own called Bullseye, which we present in the book. And, you know, two of the theses that it's based on are, remember earlier how I was saying, you know, we grew through SEO at the beginning? Yeah. That was not a good channel for us to grow on. (laughs) You know, it it maxed out pretty quickly. The only reason, you know, I was using that is because I had previous experience with it. So essentially, I was biased, you know, to use SEO initially. And that's generally what I see people doing to pursue traction. Their unstructured approach is, I'm just going to try some channels I've heard about. You know, maybe I'll put some blog posts, I'll submit to Hacker News, I'll maybe put some search engine ads. That generally does not end well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a structured approach, um, which is what we've kind of identified, is there are 19 different channels that we saw people succeed in over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's hard to predict which one was going to be successful. And in many cases, because of your bias, just not knowing about them, you, you know, if you were taking an unstructured approach, you wouldn't even think about half of these channels, like offline ads or speaking engagements or affiliate marketing. Um, and, and you may have been negatively predisposed to some of them, like sales. Mm-hmm. So what we advocate is you literally first have a brainstorming step where you systematically go through each of these channels and figure out a way that it could be usefully used to your business. Um, and then we have a series of steps, the five-step process. You rank them, you prioritize them, and then you test in parallel three of the best ideas, which we call your inner circle of the bullseye. Bullseye being that you know you have a target and you're trying to aim for the center, that one channel that unlock your growth. And then hopefully one of the three tests actually proves kind of successful. You focus on that and you drop everything else because focusing means essentially becoming, you know, a world-class expert at that channel, learning all the cutting-edge techniques, doing constant testing, all the things you're used to talking about with growth acting, mm-hmm. but in the in the one channel that's working for you. And then when that 
starts to saturate, which it did for us, you know, and it's going to naturally do. Okay. Then you restart the process. You go back to the brainstorming step. This time, you know, your business looks different. You know, things that might have moved needle before may not now. Getting pressed might be easier because you're more known. All these little variables have changed. And you kind of start it again. Got it. Okay. So a real life example, and I'm trying to think of, you know, clients that we work with. So let's say we're running an AdWords campaign for them. You know, our, our goal is to get some initial traction with it, right? And then once we see traction with, with something that has a lot of potential, we go all in there. Once that yep. saturates, we move into other channels. Perhaps AdWords start to suck. And then maybe we move into like YouTube ads or Facebook ads or something like that. Or maybe not even ads anymore, right? That's exactly right. So I think you hit what you're doing, hit it on it pretty perfectly. Is you did some initial tests, you found ads were kind of working promising, like they could get the traction they wanted. Mm-hmm. This gets back to the traction goal, like what is their goal, right? If they can get that goal via ads and you can... And you, you can kind of prove that in a small experiments. Small experiment might be you spend 250 bucks, you run four ads, you try to get to figure out what the you know customer acquisition cost is. So you do that, you get them to their 10,000 users, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, starts to saturate, starts to suck, like you said. Yep. Then you take a step back and you say, okay, you know why is this sucking? You know what are the best ideas now in front of us that might work? And it might be Facebook ads. It might have something else might have cropped up in the business that made you think that, oh, maybe we should advertise on podcasts, you know, or, 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 or something, some feedback from the market. You do a bunch of tests, and you, again, hope that one is kind of promising, and it probably isn't ads anymore, the search engine ads, and you go all in on that other one, and, and that's the process. Got it. Okay, cool. So it sounds like, uh, have you guys moved on from the TV stuff right now, or is that kind of the, the stuff you're still going all in on right no, now? No, we just, we just moved on from it, yeah. It okay. really stopped kind of moving the needle got it okay great so you know tra- what traction you know when does the you know for the audience to know when does the book come out so the book is going to come out on the 26th you can pre-order it on amazon okay 26th of august and this is 2014 for everyone yes for the future yes, that's right <laughs> okay cool great it's two weeks from when we're taping this right now cool perfect so yeah um is there anything else that you think uh any other key takeaways from traction that you'd like to bring up yeah, I mean, I really want to um, harp on this um, spending enough time on it early. So we'll, I, I think the key thing you can do is, and maybe people listening to this podcast are already predisposed to this, so they won't make this mistake, but um, you know, we argue to spend half your time on it right from the get-go um, when you're building a, a product. Mm-hmm. And that is very hard to do because you you want to build the product and the draw is to build the product. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it feels like you should wait to launch the product before getting traction. But that is that is false. And that, that's kind of what I wanted to spell. Um, the good lean, you know, methodologies only get you to, you know, a decent product that is good for some customers. But it doesn't give you the other information like, which niches should you go after first? Mm-hmm. Which marketing channel is really going to be the one that's going to get you traction? Mm-hmm. Um, you know what the messaging really should be when you're in that marketing channel, like what the ad copy eventually will be. Mm-hmm. What's going to resonate the most? If you do that early, two things happen. One, when you launch, you can immediately start to take off because you already know how to approach the market, and you can get that hockey stick growth and kind of like raise money if that's what you need, which most companies need. The other thing, which is more non-intuitive, is usually, and you've probably seen this in your consulting clients, usually when you launch and you go try to get traction, 
you know, even though they were getting feedback from their customers, they get feedback from the market now and they got to do another product development cycle or two mm -hmm. because their early feedback just wasn't comprehensive enough or those clients really did like what they were doing, but, you know, that wasn't where the big market was, you know. If they do the traction experiments early, they start running those ads early, they don't have to spend tons of money on it, but they're, it's going through, mm -hmm. you know, it usually changes, the, gets more feedback into the product and changes the product development that would have happened after. And so you actually speed up the product development cycle, even though you're spending less time on product. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that, that's the main lesson I'd love people to do is do it early and spend half your time on it. No, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, the, the cool thing about that word traction is, you know, a lot of people would think, oh, you got to spend time on marketing first. But in reality, the bigger picture is... <laughs> <laughs> the bigger the bigger thing is you got to spend time on traction whether it's it's something you got to fix on the sales side the operation side the finance side whatever helps move the needle forward i don't think it's just marketing right i completely agree with that and I, I hardly use the word marketing and i i love the moving the needle framework and phrase because that's really what it is you set your goal and you got to do anything that moves that needle and and the brainstorming thing is key because it could be like you said, it could be all over the business, you know, mm -hmm. and that's why you brainstorm because it's hard, you know, if you just take a random thing without brainstorming, you won't get the optimal result. Totally. I totally agree with that. And, you know, this brings me to my, my next point. You know, I, I read a post from you in the past and, you know, I reviewed it yesterday again. It's, you wrote something about thinking big. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that blog post and, you know, explain it to the audience? Yeah. So this, this is something, um, it took me probably a decade <laughs> to learn, and so it's hard. It's hard to um, impart, you know, so if you're not ready to kind of take it. But it's like I ran a business and was successful and sold it with a small exit. But I was not thinking big in the sense that, you know, I, I wasn't thinking in the way that um, people idealize Silicon Valley and sometimes make fun of it in terms of changing the world and thinking, you know, I could really make an impact. That's a big impact mm -hmm. and change the world. Um, and what the main takeaway is, is starting a business that, you know, is like more of a niche business or more of a take over the world business mm -hmm. is just as difficult. And in fact, it's arguably easier to start the bigger business because when you have the bigger idea, like I'm going to revolutionize X or, or, you know, make a new search engine compete with Google. Mm -hmm it's attractive to all sorts of people because they are attracted to your thinking bigness. And so it's easier to raise money. It's easier to recruit employees. It's easier to get press. Everyone is kind of interested in your, in your story. Mm -hmm. um, and so my general advice to new entrepreneurs is not to try to find a niche of a niche where you can get easy customers and work and, and get something going slowly. It's to, you know, blow it out, you know, take whatever it is that you're interested in and just, think as big as possible about the way the world should be and work towards that really big goal and it'll other things will just fall into place. Yeah, no it's it's a really a really great post and I think I might have read it a few years ago when I first started doing internet marketing. Um, so, you know, it's we're, we'll drop a link to it in, in in the you know in the post but I I think it's something everyone needs to read. Um so thank you for that. Um so with you know going back to going back to DuckDuckGo, I mean, was there any point in time where the company was on the brink of failure? So DuckDuckGo has an interesting story. So I, you know, had sold this business and I was 
thinking of what to do next. Mm -hmm. And I actually took this approach of starting a bunch of different things and, and seeing what would fall out of it or which I was most interested in. And, um, DuckDuckGo ended up being a merger of like three random side projects. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, these could be kind of a search engine. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll launch it on um, Hacker News. It was really more of a soft launch. It wasn't really even really a company. Yep. And so that was probably the moment where it could have easily died because I had other products going on. And if I had got no interest, you know, from the community there, I probably would have been like, yeah, there's probably nothing here. Mm -hmm. And and then stop. But I, I got interest, and this goes back to the thinking big thing. You know, people, everyone uses a search engine. People were really kind of interested in just something different, and I felt that energy, and that really, like, fueled me to continue growing. Mm -hmm. After that, I, I was just so passionate about the idea, and I ran it myself for three and a half years and didn't really have to raise money or anything on it. Mm -hmm. And so um, there was really no chance of it dying unless like I, I, I lost that energy from users. You know, like if I, I wasn't seeing any feedback coming in, that's probably why the only reason it would have died, but I never felt that. Got it. Okay. And you, you know, you're building something new, you know, there's a new twist on, on a search engine. And, and do, do you get any like, you know, is, do you see Bing coming after you? Do you see Google coming after you? There's any experiences like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right from the early days, you know, um, Google seemed to be tracking us very closely, even though we were tiny. And, and uh, they had a history of doing this in general and still mm -hmm. do, and, and responding to even the littlest things that search engines do. Yeah. Um, I, I think, honestly, they have, like, you know, one of the ways they compete is they have thousands of things just in the pipeline that they could launch at any time. And mm -hmm. they see a startup do something, they're like, oh, I, we, have, we have something like that. We'll just launch it. Um, which, which led me to the thesis of doing things that, you know, for more structural reasons, Google can't do easily. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can be applied to competing in lots of other markets. Right. You know, because when you compete with an incumbent, they have their incumbent business. It's kind of like the the standard disruption model. You know, they don't want to cannibalize themselves. Privacy mm -hmm. is a great example of that. You know, Google is an ad company. Mm -hmm. And so it's very hard for them not to track their users. Um, it's very hard to compete with that. Got it. Um, Cool. So, you know, Google's an ad company. You talked about them tracking users. You aren't tracking users. So, you know, can you reveal kind of to the audience what, what are the future plans to monetize? Yeah, what's, what's crazy about web search is, you know, you don't need to track users to make money in web search. Um, it's kind of a myth because, as you know, from search engine marketing, it's like almost all the money is just made on the keyword match. Mm -hmm. And that has nothing to do with tracking the users. Um, you know, you type in car, you get a car ad. Um, I need to know nothing about you to serve that ad. And so there's a lucrative business model built right in. So we syndicate the Microsoft Yahoo ads. All that tracking is generally for, for you know, all these other properties that Google and the other companies run. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Google runs, you know, four of the biggest ad networks in the world. You right. know, and only one of them is ad, AdWords. It also has AdSense, DoubleClick, and AdMob. Mm -hmm. And they need to use that search engine information to track you across the rest of the web. Um, but on the search engine itself, it's managed as keyword based. Got it. Okay, cool. Perfectly simple. Um, so let's let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about angel investing. So, you know, between running a company and then, you know, doing angel investing, I mean, how do you balance your time? So it is a good question. I, when I was running the search engine myself, 
it felt like I had a lot more time <laughs> and it was, it was less of a, you know, a building out the company and I was just building the product. What I've learned is it's very different, you know, building a product, a business and a company are all three different things and they take different amounts of time. At the beginning, I was just building the product and I kind of had more time mm -hmm. and now I'm building all three. I have a lot less time. Mm -hmm. um, so I've scaled back um, my angel investing time. Um, and I've mainly done uh, more passive investments of people that I've already known. You know, mm -hmm. ends up being because I met so many people along the way, ends up being about the same rate of investing. Mm -hmm. But I've just spent a lot less time going out there, you know, trying to source deals. Got it. You know what's interesting? You know, I have a lot of uh, a lot of friends that are like, oh, you know, I want to go invest on AngelList and all that, but it's not as simple as it looks. So, you know, based on what you've seen, you know, what are some realistic returns from angel investing, and how long does it take? So, um, the answer is, if you get into it, you really should be thinking about throwing that money away, <laughs> um, and. And that's your, that should be your expectation or else you might be disappointed. Um, but I think it's, you know, with a decent angel investing thesis, it is reasonable to break even on it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard to estimate returns beyond that. Um, to even get there, though, you, you really need to do a couple things um, which are key. One is you got to invest in a bunch of deals. And that's a rookie mistake is putting all your money in like one deal because it's really hard to tell early on. Every, everything looks good really early, but most things die for one reason or another. And then two is you got to spread that over several years because it just turns out that certain years kill startups way more than other years, like macroeconomic downturns and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so if you you know invest over many years in a bunch of companies, say 12 plus, um, and you have decent deal flow, you need to go out and kind of do that. You can either do that by like co-investing with people or yeah, using AngelList makes it a lot easier. Um, I think it's reasonable to expect yourself to break even. Time frame is, you know, average time to exit for angel investments is like seven years. So it is a long time. So in general, I say don't, don't go in this for the money, especially if you're not full-time. Mm -hmm. It's more for you know, learning about, you know, doing startups yourself, maybe investing for the future. You know, if you're going to transition, become a full-time annual investor in a long time from now, it's like, it's putting in that time and learning time. Got it. And on average, how much are you typically putting into these deals? So me, it's between 25 and 50 K. Got it. Um, which is, you know, kind of typical. Um, on AngelList now, you can get lower. I would argue that, 25k is probably the minimum for for decent sized deals to allow you in, mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so I think it's hard to go lower than that. Got it. Okay, great. So you know that's that's a good bit on angel investing. Perhaps we can talk about that next time when we have you here. Um, you know, let's um, changing gears again. You know, what's what's one piece of advice you'd give to your your 25 year old self? Um, you know. The thinking big thing that we talked about earlier, you, you hit on that. I think that is like, that is the main thing. But like I was saying, that's actually hard to impart <laughs> mm -hmm. on people. Um, the, you know, my path's a little different, but 
you know, because I kind of randomly hit on this uh, other successful business. But like, what I would, what I would, what I usually advise to people around that age is, you know, the given what we just talked about, the life cycle of these annual investments is like seven years, right? That's the flip side of that is if you're a founder, that's how long it's going to take. <laughs> so um, you shouldn't start something unless you're willing to really go in it for a decade. Mm-hmm. That that's one thing. And I've met a lot of founders who, you know, somewhat opportunistically went into an idea. Three years in, are like, why did I choose this idea? Mm-hmm. Now I'm kind of in it. I can't really get out of it. It wasn't really the idea I would have chose because I'm not super passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I usually advise if you have an area that you're really passionate about, you know, by all means start that company because you're super passionate about it. I think it's a great idea. If you don't, which a lot of people don't, I would advise jump in a company, not just any startup, one that is uh, kind of on the path to success, but isn't too far along. So like has just raised that Series A investment as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, validated, they have a bunch of traction, they have some product market fit. Um, you could make a significant impact. It's probably like 10 employees or less, mm-hmm. you know, and you could ride that for a few years, learn all sorts of stuff, about how to run a successful business, and then go start. In that few years, you'll find your passion about what you want to start, and then you can go start that company. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. You know, that's the exact same startup experience I had. So, you know, I, I think maybe we should even put together like a checklist on, you know, when you should join a startup, what you can expect <laughs> after in a timeline. That's great. Um, cool. And what's one productivity hack you can share with the audience? Oh, I'm a big productivity guy. Um, <laughs> just one. I don't know. Um, hmm. So I'm a big inbox zero person. To do that effectively, I use um, two programs that you might be familiar with: um, Sanebox mm-hmm. um, in my email, which basically filters most important mail out. It's kind of like the important thing in uh, in Gmail. Yeah, they're a client. Okay, cool. <laughs> so I love Sanebox, and then I also use a Wayfind which um, it kind of has two purposes. Basically, you mark who's the most important to you, and then it'll send you text messages or push notifications, whatever you want, when you get emails from those people. Mm. Um, What this enables you to do is two things. Um, They have basically two use cases. One is you go on vacation, you really don't, you want to completely shut off. This will send you texts if anything really important comes up. Mm -hmm. But two, on a day-to-day basis, once you're confident you're going to get texts or push notifications for important emails, and they can be keyword-based too, like urgent, mm-hmm. then you can shut down your email mm-hmm. for hours at a time because you'll get notified if something's important, and then you don't have to be checking your email all the time. So the combination of those like enables me to shut down my email for a while, occasionally go in, just check what's in there that's not insane later, you know, filter by same box, mm-hmm. so it's a very quick process. And then at the end of the day or in the morning, I could go through all the same later stuff. Got it. Okay. You know what? I, I feel like you have a lot of these tricks under your sleeve, so why don't you share one more? <laughs> sure. Okay. So that's email. Um, I do, you know, do you want to do more email? <laughs> up to you. Hmm. Okay. So, um, oh, yeah. This is, this is not email one. I use a virtual assistant. Um, I use Fancy Hands in particular. Um, and it is, I think a lot of people reject virtual assistants because they don't know how to use them. 
or they sign up and it feels expensive, can't think of the tasks. Um, and my advice is to just buy a big plan that like is essentially 25 tasks or unlimited or whatever it is for that month. And just like buy a three month thing. So you've committed to it <laughs> and then try to change your life to do it. Because once you actually make the life change, it is so much more productive. So as an example of things you can do, and I have a post on my blog about like the last 20 things I submitted in fancy hands so people get a sense for what kind of things to submit. But pretty much um, anytime I have to talk on the phone, like anything, not just reservations, but like, you know, getting a refund or something or something went wrong with my service and I need it fixed, I set it off to fancy hands to do it. Um, any kind of basic web research, even though I run a search engine, <laughs> like, you know, I need to research a product or I needed something with high review on Amazon for this, or I need a gift for somebody, I will send them all the fancy answers, you know? And so it just, even if they, I think people get hung up on two other things too. One is, you know, what if they do it wrong? So what? You can still email them back and keep the test going and say, fix this, fix that. It's still a lot faster than if you did it yourself. Mm-hmm. And the other thing which people don't realize is I submit a lot of these tasks mobile. So a lot of times you remember this stuff and you're, you're out, you know, and fancy hands will just do the work for you and do the legwork, initial legwork while you're out. Mm-hmm. And their app is pretty cool. You can actually just speak to it. So I can just be like, Hey, do this. I want like, you know, I, I just thought of this. Can you make this reservation for me? I'll get back later and it'll just be done. Huh. Okay. Well, you know, that's actually really interesting. And, you know, so you can tell them to make reservations for you. You know, what are a few other things you can ask Fancy Hands to do? So, you know, I I go all over the map with this. Like, um, you know, a common stuff with me, I have kids, you know, I, I want to find out what events are going on. I'll just be like, you know, find me kid events, you know, this Saturday. Um, or, you know what, let me just see this. Um, it's always fun to just actually see what your last tasks were. (laughs) Um, and, uh, you know, let's see. Okay. So cool. Um, some really good ones. Um, oh yeah. So this is good for business and growth people. I had a corporate filing that just, you know, you get like an IRS statement and it was just like wrong. And they like sat on the phone with them for like hours to figure out what the deal was. <laughs> um, helped me uh, find an interview I found online that I, I couldn't find very easily. Um, you know, something was broken in our house and I didn't know how to get the part. I just basically took a picture and just said, can you figure this out for me? Yeah. You know, find how to order this part. Um and uh, let's see, something else. Find a schedule our electrician to come out. Um, find a place to donate some furniture to. Um, really, all over the map. Um, one thing I note is, like, even if uh, you have to talk on the phone, you know, the virtual assistant will patch you through. Mm-hmm. So you can be like, uh, schedule it on your time on your time frame. So like, if you if you maintain your calendar and be like, okay, I have a window at ten thirty. Um, you could have the virtual assistant say, you know, I want to get these errands done, then just get the calls all ready and just patch me in at 1030. Got it. Okay. Well, that's, you know, this might give this a good sell. <laughs> this is a, this is a crazy sell. I'm probably going to go sign up right after because I, <laughs> I need this. Um, I have a virtual assistant, but she can't knock out things like this. So 
No, thanks for that. Um, final question. You know, besides traction, which everyone in the audience has to buy, must buy. Uh, what's one must-read book for entrepreneurs? So I just finished reading that um, Ben Horowitz book, Hard Things About Hard Things, and um, I can't recommend it enough. I think it's it tells a, a, the most realistic story of what's going on that I've seen. Yep, it's funny because uh, you know it's I'm about to make all my uh, all my team members read it, um, and. <laughs> It's the seventh time this book has been recommended on the show, and I, I, I can't recommend it enough either. It's probably the best book I've read in the last year. So, yeah, I agree with that. Yep, cool. So great, you know, Gabriel. You know, thanks for, thanks so much for being on the show. You know, everyone, go to duck.go.com if you want to try. You know, Gabriel search engine. You know, I, I've tried it before. It's great. Um, also, you know, pre-order his book Traction. Everyone needs to buy it. It's a must-buy. Um, but other than that, you know, um, Gabriel, how else can we uh, how else can we contact you? I am best contacted on Twitter. It's Yegg, Y-E-G-G. All right, Yegg. And then uh, also your blog, is is it Gabriel Weinberg? Yep, Gabriel Weinberg. Okay, dot, dot com, right? Yep. Okay, perfect. So thanks so much for being on the show, man. Thank you. All right.